friends and enemies. It's episode 259 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Uh, and we are very excited to be joined by two guests from the Alphabet Workers Union um, here to talk to us today about the, the nuts and bolts of organizing, about the mechanics of um, the AWU, which I think is one of the most interesting and exciting kind of labor organizing movements happening in, in um, the tech sector right now. And absolutely, um, I know a model that a lot of other places, a lot of other people, a lot of other places are really looking at to see how is this going how are they doing it? Um, what's happening there? And what can maybe we learn in our workplace or in our sector? And so I'm very excited to be joined uh, for uh, a discussion on that with um, two people. I'll throw it over first to, to Ani for a, a, a self-introduction, and then we'll go over to Stephen. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Ani. I usually hear pronouns. Um, I'm a musician, a singer, a programmer sometimes. I work at Google. Um, I was one of the people that started the campaign that became Alphabet Workers Union, like way back. That seems like decades ago, but it wasn't that long. Um, and I served on the inaugural, inaugural executive council of AWU as the organizing chair. So I have a lot of knowledge and things that I love to rant about, about like organizing theory, like how we did it, like all the <laughs> nuts and bolts that I'm really excited to talk about because nobody else wants to listen to me talk about it. So, <laughs> Well, we definitely do. And I'm excited to get into all that, but I'll throw it over to Steven. Uh, hi, my name is Stephen McMurtry. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm a senior software developer at Google. Uh, I've been there for two years. Before that, worked at Amazon, uh, where I was involved in some other uh, what are, worker organizing for uh, climate justice and also No Tech for Ice. Um, but then, whatever, a few years ago, I moved to Chicago to get married from Seattle. And uh, Google's the only uh, big tech company with an office uh, here in the Midwest. Uh, and so that's part of the reason I wanted to, whatever, get a job. But also, uh, Alphabet Workers Union had launched uh, at that point in July of 2021. And of all my job offers, there was only one place where I could join a union. So I was, <laughs> I was very excited uh, to do that. I love and that. I'm currently I, the uh, uh, communications chair at uh, whatever, uh, at our union. So, yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah. Happy to have you both on. I love that, though. I love that the the union was a, a big factor for for joining Google. Um, you know, if if we have any bosses or managers listening, one, this ain't for you. But two, um, <laughs> li listen to that. People people love working at places where they can actually have a union and have um, organizing power. And so, but I, I'll, maybe we can get into that that aspect as some of the broader context there. Where I mean. The, the tech sector has for so long been, um, you know, if, if not outright anti-union, which I think it increasingly has, um, especially among the venture capitalists and some of the, the more well-known executives are really vocally anti-union, anti-labor. Um, but for a long time, the tech sector has instead kind of coasted off this idea that, hey, unions are great, but like for you guys, like unions, like we don't need that here because we're not, we're not co-workers, we're coders, right? And we have like, uh, you know, free breakfast and lunch and dinner at the office and we're all a big family here and we kind of take care of you. Uh, and every, and so, you know, this idea that like unions are for people who are, are disempowered and marginalized, not for tech workers, right? Um, I think, of course, those myths have been um, really uh, slowly and steadily debunked over time, but it still is the case that 
the tech sector um, is not very unionized. And I think that's one reason why the Alphabet Workers Union stands out so much. So maybe could you talk a little bit about that kind of broader context um, and and how it led to uh, wanting to actually start a, a union at Alphabet? I mean, this kind of question comes up like all the time, right? I really like how you use the word like disempowered because I remember we launched people like, oh, this is like a sham because think about these mine workers who like loving this is a sham for these workers to call themselves a union. It turns out it doesn't matter what like people on Twitter say, like we're a union because we have power as a collective and because we have a shared motivation and a shared interest in working together to change things in our workplace, right? And I think that's where like Alphabet Workers Union is really interesting in like a lot of different ways, but one of those reasons is like why we're in the room or which people are in the room and why they're here, right? So when it comes to like feeling disempowered, okay, maybe you go to work and your job is fine, your benefits are fine, and you're working on products that are going to cause harm to other people. That's the situation that I found myself in. And to me, it's like, yeah, there's no ethical consumption or capital, whatever. I mean, I have like for myself, like a personal moral responsibility, I feel like, right? About like, what is my work being used towards? And that's just something that a lot of people at the company felt like, what is our work being used towards? Are we actually here because we want to make the world a better place? And I think that's also like why it's really interesting to look at Google as a place that attracted all these idealistic people who are here to work at this amazing company with this amazing PR because we want to make these amazing products and make the world better for everybody, you know? And then people come here and they get disillusioned. It happens now, happens later. More and more people get disillusioned over time, you know? So like that's kind of like the start of what becomes a movement of petitions, of activism um, that started for like years before I was at the company, right? But then the question is like, how do you turn that into something more concrete, more solid? And then how do you find interests along different lines? Because not everybody has it easy at Google. Google hires a lot of different people um, and not everybody is treated equitably. So a union is kind of a platform, you know? I have one interest, you have a different interest. How can we come together and use our collective power to meet both of our needs? Whether I'm concerned about harassment in the workplace or AI ethics and what my work is being used for, or if I'm a subcontractor and I just wish I could have a conversion to a full-time job like the people that I do work alongside with, right? So I think that's kind of like what you see as a foundation for the union in the very beginning. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a really good point. You know, I feel like a lot of times when there is coverage of union of the union drives and of the organizing campaigns, they're largely centering around you know, flashpoint issues that, of course, like come together and meet a lot of concerns that individual workers or large groups of workers have. But also, you know, this is stuff that is boiling and simmering long term, day to day. Um, I, would, I would be interested in like hearing a bit also about like, you know, how, you know, what the, what the organizing, what the kind of conversations, what the, what the work itself looks like when you are dealing with workers in these day-to-day moments outside of the larger offense? I mean, do you? It, was it that the union and attempts at unions that might have come before uh, were born out of, like, you know, people who were immediately familiar with or concerned with trying to bring a union or that sort of structure to the workplace? Or was it coming out of grievances that, you know, workers had and then coming together and trying to find a way to support each other or other concerns about the workplace or work that's being done? You know, like what, what, what some are some of the, uh, some of the catalysts that I guess happen in background that are not 
exclusively, I guess, like some of the larger campaigns and mobilizations that we that we tend to see. I mean, I love that you're like already on like the <laughs> the really nitty gritty stuff that I love talking about. Like, what do you do when everybody's excited about organizing? What do you do when nobody wants to talk to you because all that stuff happened months ago and everybody's moved on, right? Like, it's such a fickle thing when it comes to timing. Um, and how you talk about things and how you are able to take advantage of different opportunities. Um, I think I should just like answer the question concretely, right? In 2018, there was something called the Women's Walkout at Google. This is in response to like some Android executive getting this huge multi-million dollar payout after like a lot of sexual harassment allegations, um, things along that sort. And like for me, I had been at the company for maybe like I was an intern before. I was there for maybe a few months at that time. And that was like a moment for me to click and see, oh my God, people actually left their workplace to go and protest over this. Like that was news to me to see that because I didn't realize that was like the kind of company that I was in. I maybe had a lot of the same disillusionments about like working in tech and like where I should spend my energy, where I should spend my like activism, that kind of thing, you know? So that's like a major moment. There's like six demands raised alongside the women's walkout. And then the company really is just good at kind of diffusing these demands. Like, okay, they ended up meeting, I think we said like half of one of them, you know, at the end of the day. They're really good at taking this and then diffusing it. We're going to listen to you. We'll hold ourselves accountable. Kind of just like distract until everybody forgets about it, right? And a few, min- few months later, another thing happens. Women's walkout organizers report that they were experiencing retaliation. So like I was around for that at that point too. And I'm like man, like, what do we do about this? Like, I'm so frustrated, so upset. A friend of mine, like, gets me into, like, an organizer training. And suddenly, like, I see this playbook about how organizing a union actually works. And, like, it doesn't really make sense to do at Google, like, the scale, some of it. But I'm like, okay, we'll just, like, try it. And we'll, if, if it doesn't work, like, we'll, we'll adjust or whatever. But, let, like, let's, let's try the playbook, you know, if it worked for all these other folks and everything. Um, but when it comes to, like, what do people organize around? Do they want to come together for a union? Like, it's one thing to say, like, you're pro-union. It's another thing to say, like, I'm down for this union, you know, I want to join in a union with you. And that means making a compromise. And like, there's a lot of decisions. It's a lot of like politics when it came to like the union we went to, how we structured it, all this sort of thing. There's a lot of disagreement too. I think there's like a large number of people who had these kinds of concerns. Like when you have such a big company, you just have a small 1% of people upset about ethical issues at a hundred thousand person companies, a thousand people, you know, when you get that kind of scale. Um, but just because you're progressive on issues doesn't mean you're easy to work with. It doesn't mean you're a good organizer. doesn't mean that people like you. doesn't mean that you're good at being social and organizing and all this kind of thing, right? So I think like, when I think about like, how did it get started? Like for me, it's like, okay, we did these petitions before it used to do something, before it used to mean something at the company, but we keep on doing the petitions and it's not having the same impact. So like I was involved with organizing against Google bidding on a contract with CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, which was running those concentration camps at the time and everything. We do that petition and then people get fired out of it, right? That's the point where I'm like, I mean, it feels really bad, but it's also like, what can we do differently? How can we do this more safely? Could we have known? Should we have done this in a different way? So to me, it's like, how do we take the energy the activism that's already here and make it a little bit more structured, a little bit more organized. What would this look like if instead of people kind of like burning themselves out, burning themselves out, like leading these efforts one by one, we had a structure, we had dues, we had people paid to do some of the administrative work so that we can focus on the organizing work on conversations. These are like, I can talk about this for hours, but this is like, these are some of the really early conversations happening like back in like 2019. Yeah. 2019 is a lot of this like kind of formative phase of stuff. I think the that's a great point about, you know, not like needing a, a durable like platform and model for organizing. 
um, that, you know, this uh, has also happened at Amazon where I used to work, you know, where there's particular issues where you get, you know, usually one or two or three really motivated organizers who all have to recreate this work of, all right, I need to get, I need to build an email list. I need to get people's, um, you know, hopefully, ideally, uh, off corp or, you know, like not there at amazon.com email, not there at google.com email, but their personal Gmail, uh, so that you can reach them, uh, and they don't feel like they're being surveilled, uh, by their boss. Uh, and so, you know, like that would happen repeatedly for all of these different, you know, like quote unquote issue campaigns. And so uh, I think the, you know, our union's a great way to have a solid base of organizing where we don't need to recreate a lot of this infrastructure every time something happens. Uh, and then we can, you know, like build on that. And then like Ani was saying, you know, find these solidarities and different interests and try to make like a big tent organization, um, you know, that will help people come together and like organize sustainably, uh, you know, to make change at the company. Uh, And so, you know, this is, I I think even played out uh, recently when we Google laid off 12,000 people in January, uh, you know, we were we were able to because we had our union, uh, you know, and uh, a lot of people organized, ready to act. You know, we had a, uh, a Zoom call or a webinar where, you know, I think we had uh, we had 1000 people on the call, which was the most that you can have on a Zoom call. And, you know, the majority of these people were not currently members. Uh, we had another 700 watching on YouTube like live and then, you know, another 3000 people watched the video later. Um, and so whatever, that was really great. Uh, you know, the people, you know, seem to know, Hey, like, uh, they're, you know, I know there's a union at alphabet. What are they doing about these layoffs? And, you know, the answer is a little bit like there aren't enough of us to really do much, uh, other than to, you know, use this to, to agitate and grow our organization and, you know, prepare for, you know, next time, like how can we be more prepared for the second round of layoffs, which has happened at Amazon has happened at Meta. Um, you know, hasn't happened at, uh, alphabet yet, but, you know, very well could and likely will. Uh, so yeah, I think that, you know, that's like a very important part is just having the infrastructure for organizing so that we're able to react to these, you know, like issues and events, uh, that otherwise, you know, burn a lot of people out as they try to create new infrastructure every time there's something to respond to. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I love all this and I love all this in part because like the, the, you know, labor just in, you know, the American economy more generally outside of tech has become so disempowered and so de-skilled, right? You know, we, we know as good leftists, we know about the de-skilling of labor by managerial, um, by managers and by bosses, by capital. But I also think there's been a mass de-skilling of labor as a movement, right? In other words, people have largely forgotten um, or not been taught what a labor movement is what it looks like, how it operates, what its purpose is. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of like having to learn from first principles again, like what is a union supposed to be? How is it supposed to be structured? How do you even go about creating one? And I, and, and hearing both of you talk about the experiences and the kind of context leading up to, um, starting Alphabet Workers Union. 
a lot of it is, I think, a, a, a really great reminder that unions are both an offensive and a defensive organization, right? Like, yes, they are offensive in the sense that they like they agitate for change. They give the the you know labor a more forceful voice um, and power in the industry. They hold uh, management and capital to account, but they're also defensive um, in that they are about protecting people from getting fired for taking action. Um, they are about um, creating these infrastructures of care and solidarity um, to say, hey, we're all in this together and we will take care of each other mutually. Um, and and I, I think a lot about like in uh, both of your comments have really make me think as well about very close friend of the show, um, Meredith Whitaker. Um, and in some conversations I've had with Meredith and in an interview um, I had with Meredith about the, the Google walkouts and everything. And, and talking about this, uh, um, it, it made me think as well, you were saying that, you know, like management at Google was just like not taking the the workers seriously, not taking these concerns seriously around the 2018 women's walkout, right? Like, you know, being like, you got this long list of, of, of demands and, and requirements and they're like meeting, you know, a half of a demand or something like that. And, and remind me of something that Meredith was saying around Project Maven, where, you know, uh, Google executives hosted this, you know, one of these big kind of like Google town hall events that was, you know, a uh, simulcast live stream to every Google uh, headquarters around the world. And it was supposed to be this big like discussion between Meredith and some of the executives around like Project Maven and military contracts and stuff. And Meredith was telling me that she had done, you know, just like, like a full week of prep and just all of this work in preparation for it got up there on stage and it was very clear that the executive she was discussing um, had spent zero time thinking about this whatsoever, did not take it seriously, thought it was just a big kind of stage show that they'd get up there, say some some bullet points, and then everything would be fine, that nobody actually cared um, about these issues. And in other words, I think like a, a, a big part of the what you're talking about is that like even in a place like tech or especially in a place like alphabet and the tech industry like making it known that no actually the you know the uh, workers have real serious concerns that need to be taken very seriously around like what is happening and what you're doing and so and and from what you're saying it sounds like that message really speaks a, a lot to people as well that like you're getting this this uh, response um, from other people who are really kind of you know supportive of this because they see, okay, this is both a you know a way for my concerns to be taken seriously, but it's also a way to create these kind of infrastructures of care that maybe I feel like are not um, well well represented in the the uh, organization right now. Is yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I would say all the the people on that call, right? Like say there's maybe 3000 total or something, not, uh, we got about 300 new members, uh, you know, who joined our union, but not, uh, whatever, not everyone did, right. There were still a lot of people who are like, Hey, it's really messed up. The Google did layoffs. I'm going to go onto a zoom call about it. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be frustrated, uh, 
you know, but uh, I'm not willing to take the next step, which is, all right, now I need to go actually talk to my coworkers about this uh, and, you know, convince, convince them that, you know, we need to, to stand together, you know, against management. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that didn't happen and it would be great. Uh, but also, you know, I think some lessons we learned from it is that it's really hard to, when you have, uh, you know, we had roughly 1,200 members at the time, that it's hard to follow up with 3,000 people. <laughs> as like, as much as the basics of organizing, you know, is having one-on-one conversations, uh, you know, we learned that we didn't have like uh, a great plan to, you know, okay, we have, you know, 2,000 Zoom registrations. How do we uh, map everyone to a coworker who sits in their office who can then, you know, follow up with them to, to have like a more in-depth conversation? Uh, so, yeah, you know, I think that's something that we're, we're improving on, but like haven't quite mastered is how to go from like these like macro, like mass issues to then doing like the deep and regular organizing that's required to, you know, to actually get people to join the union and then themselves become organizers, not just people who, you know, whether, whether they're super left or not, you know, to say, oh, okay, unions are good. Uh, and I'll join and, you know, I'll pay dues because it's good that organizing is happening. And that is like a, a class of, of member that we have are people who say, I don't really want to be involved, but hey, that's very progressive. I'm glad that, you know, that you all are doing this. Uh, but then moving those people to, you know, be be trained on how to have one on one conversations, how to create maps of their workplace to identify who are the social leaders who, you know, they need to recruit to then, you know, like multiply union membership and then start building power in their workplace. Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, I guess, like we have a lot of it, but there's still, uh, you know, a lot more work that needs to be done because uh, there's it's a really big company and we still have a lot of people to to organize. Maybe we could use that then to talk a little bit about the the relationship that Alphabet Workers Union has with CWA, with the Communication Workers of America, and and how have how has that uh, relationship, um, you know, how has that formed? How's that been going? And also, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking today is because you guys are becoming your own local, um, which is, you know, I think a really big next step in the uh, uh, the the unionizing kind of you know process here. And 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 you're right. I mean, I think it's really taking for granted how much of that everyday work it needs to happen and how much of it is just really interpersonal um it is things that uh uh maybe leftist uh are not and leftist and techies and then you throw them together but uh maybe not the be- most well-known people for being like super interpersonally uh, <laughs> adept um but like you know this is a this is a a, a job and labor organizing is a job but it's a job that is fundamentally a social job it's an interpersonal job um and uh and so how has uh the your relationship with the cwa um how has that formed how's that been going and what's it look like for um for alphabet workers union to become its own local uh, I will let Ani talk about uh, why, uh, whatever, our members decided to join uh, Communications Workers of America, because I was not there at the time. So I don't actually know. I've just heard stories. Uh, but I can talk about uh, the process of becoming our own local, which is uh, some some real inside baseball, inside labor organizing stuff, but I, I think fairly cool, uh, which is so... 
you know, if you've heard of uh, a union local, uh, you know, maybe you've heard of uh, SEIU 1026 or something, uh, or the local that we originally joined was uh, CWA Local 1400, which was based in New Hampshire. And it was, you know, a, a local uh uh, well, I guess, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to say the term local a lot. Uh, an organization that, you know, they mostly organized uh, people who worked for Verizon and AT&T, uh, which is actually where a lot of the membership of Communications Workers of America comes from. Uh, and so uh, different locals are usually assigned, for, for the most part, geographic areas. So it's like, hey, you're in charge of, you know, if you work in a UAW local in Iowa, you know, you'll probably uh, organize a lot of folks who are, you know, work at John Deere or Caterpillar or whatever factories happen to be in the area. Um, but uh, since whatever alphabet is spread all across uh, the U.S. and Canada and, and also around the world, but due to, to labor law where most are like we can organize U.S. and Canadian workers in the same organization, uh, but labor law is so different in Europe or in you know, many countries in Asia that it just like it, there's no legal way for us to be part of like the exact same uh, organization. Uh, so anyway, so our local is structured in that we're in charge of, we've been given permission, I guess, uh, by community, by CWA to organize everyone who works for Alphabet, uh, which is whatever Google's parent company. And there's like a few other smaller companies that are under the Alphabet banner, uh, Waymo, uh, you know, the self-driving car startup is like an Alphabet subsidiary as is Verily, which is like a, a life sciences kind of like health, uh, company, so those both uh, are under the alphabet umbrella and then Google's the biggest. And then also we are trying to organize everyone who's uh, a subcontracted worker uh, who works on alphabet or Google projects. Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, I think like in, in the U S and Canada, there are 50,000 uh, subcontracted workers who aren't employed by Google, but we still like want to organize. Uh, and then there's, uh, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but tens of thousands of workers who work directly for Google in the US and Canada. So I, I guess our local is actually not local uh, because it's whatever spread across uh, these two countries, but we're all focused on organizing people at, you know, the main companies and any of their subcontractors. Um, and so then I, know, I guess like as part of that, there's a lot of really minor, you know, details. We, we are a 501 C five, which is the, whatever the tax code for labor organization, which has different rules than a 501 C three nonprofit. Um, yeah, but like, whatever, that's not super important, but I, I think the main purpose is just that like, we now have an organization and a mission, like with, you know, a big target of a hundred thousand plus workers who work for Google that uh, we are, you know, in charge of and want to organize all of them. So I think that's like the the exciting thing about actually becoming our own, not that local local. Yeah, I mean, and it's a huge it's a huge job too. I mean, I think so, you know, I want to throw it over to Ani to talk about the CWA, but just to for for listeners as well. And I mean, this is something that Ed and I have brought up, you know, in episodes recently, but. 
you know, one of the really hard things about organizing a company like Google or like Amazon, right? Um, these like really massive geographically spread out companies is that, um, and, you know, in large part, organizing happens according to the workplace, right? It happens workplace by workplace. That's why we see with like the Amazon Workers Union, um, you know, organizing warehouse by warehouse. It's a really fucking hard job um, that these, the company, the company structure makes even even more difficult by being so spread out. And so it's, it's, you know, it's really, um, great that you are, you know, even though you're only able to, to get, uh, you know, the U S and, and Canada, that's still a huge <laughs> number of, of people. Um, and, and being able to really target all of those, uh, all of those workers, you know, for one local, I think is, is actually in my mind, really, uh, beneficial for the, for the organizing to not have it be so spread out and thinly distributed. Um, it does make the work maybe a little bit easier, but I want to throw it over to, to Ani to talk about the relationship with CWA and how that kind of started and what that looked like. Yeah, I mean, I think to speak to the history of like CWA, it's like a really, really complicated, convoluted topic. Like a lot of history that like I'm really glad we get the chance to talk about a little more because this was like a lot of those early days. I mean, they say that an organization like this, like it grows in leaps and bounds, right? Like a few people in our room to like 30 to 100 to 200 to like a thousand. Like that's literally our trajectory. How do you get people to like agree on a common plan, um, on a practical plan of action? Because we're not just talking about like an organization, we're talking about a democratic organization, right? Where our leaders aren't just like whoever's been doing this the longest, it's somebody who was democratically elected by the membership and is accountable in that kind of way, right? And I think that idea of like democracy, organizations, splitting records, all this stuff like needs to be more of a conversation because for me, like I've done a lot of organizing before I worked at Google, right? I've started a lot of organizations. I've seen a lot of organizations like split and fall apart for lots of different reasons. Um, some usually it's just hard to like organize, but there's a lot of infighting. Um, and there's so much to say about like the class dynamics of why people fight so much in leftist organizations, right? And how do you like mold over those disagreements? How do you actually get something going? Like for AW to be where it is right now, like I never would have seen this coming like five years ago, right? Four years ago, but. Um, but to actually like answer the question about like why we went with CWA, I mean, you guys ever seen that meme page like oh like Silicon Valley like invented the bus again? Like, like <laughs> yes. that's like a lot of a lot of. I mean, there's just like a like a really really repeated tendency for software engineers to like underestimate the complexity of union organizing, and it's just like a lack of familiarity. I think, um, and I speak for myself too. You know, I never organized a union before this one. And I think like, how do you situate, how do you say, how do you situate yourself in a movement that you've never been a part of before that you don't have the history for? And when you talk also about like, what do people know about unions? What's the history? What's the propaganda? What do people have going into a workplace like this? It's all really relevant as well as people's class backgrounds at this company. Right? So we always have this discussion, like, do we go with the union or do we um, try to form our own independent union? And like, do we commit to CWA? Will everybody else at Google be down for that? Because I think our early impression was like, oh, like if we bring in like another organization, it's going to make people more mistrustful, you know? Like, oh, it's one thing to have a union with my coworkers, but I don't want this big union coming in and telling us what to do about XYZ. Like when you talk about anti-union propaganda, third-partying the union, all this sort of thing, like it's a really, really delicate thing to navigate. Like it's something we navigate every day in our one-on-one organized conversations. And it's definitely something we navigated back then when it's like, 
do we actually do this? Do we do this with CWA? So, I mean, to tell like the really concrete story, like I message a bunch of unions, <laughs> I, I call them, I email them. I'm like <laughs> trying to get a sense of the lay of the land, right? And I also became part of something called Pride at Work, which is like the LGBT constituency group of the AFL-CIO. The AFL-CIO is like the Federation of Labor Unions in the US and Canada. So it's like an organization of labor unions. Um, and I think like some of the guidance and advice I got there was really, really useful to understand like, okay, is this a union that's actually working with us? Or are they gonna understand our issues? Um, now, like when it comes to CWA, like to me, it's like a match made in heaven, like on both sides, like the kind of support that we got, but also what we meant to CWA. Like, I think if I can introduce the idea of like oppositions, right? of like us on one side, us the workers, us the tech workers, we're so special, we're, you know, all this stuff. And then like the union movement, right? There's like oppositions of those, there's things to be learned on both sides because not every union would have been right for us when it comes to what we wanted to organize around. Like we were really concerned about harassment issues and discrimination in the workplace and diversity and inclusion, having giving people access to the jobs, conversion, that kind of thing. There's other unions who would say like, that's not a union issue, that's for the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, right? Um, but then when you talk about like our role as workers, like what we wanted to organize around when it comes to like these ethical issues, that's not even supported in the labor law. Right. So when it comes to CWA, I mean, like when I reached out to CWA, like I talked, I, I knew them from like, I was doing work in an organization called Game Workers Unite. So I like met a couple of like staff organizers there. And then I ended up like in a phone call with like CWA's organizing director, like a week later, who's like really interested in this. And like, we kind of talk over and I'm like, what if we could take all the good parts about like, you know, you talk about like solidarity unions, like the IWW cell, where it's like, leave the law aside, like we're union because we say that we are. So I'm like, that sounds great. That sounds like something a lot of Google workers would be down for, but it also doesn't necessarily sound practical at this scale. So I'm like, what if we did this, but we just made a structure underneath it, right? And didn't worry about all the legal ramifications, like the restrictions of that. Is that even possible? Is that legal? Has anyone done this before? Like, these are the questions you were asking back then, right? Turns out someone's done it before because in CWA, we found really concrete examples, specifically in the public sector, things like the TSEU, which is Texas State Employees Union, um, but also some private sector areas like um, T-Mobile United. I, I forget all the providers, so I don't want to mess up which union it is. Um, and also things like the United Campus Workers. See, these are unions that work within the CWA under a pre-majority model and have been running for decades and decades. So we're like, okay, they know what they're talking about. And also they seem to be willing to meet us where we're at when it comes to like, we decide what the issues are. We, the workers decide what the issues are. We're the ones who drive the organizing forward. And that's not something like you should take for granted in a union. Like a lot of unions do not operate in that way. A lot of unions do not act with like really strong democratic principles. So for us, it's this process of like, is this the right fit for us or not? Are we going to have all of our needs met? But at the end of the day, like the first offer was like, we want to support you however we can and we don't expect anything and we have no strings attached. You know, that was like the first bit of the work. And I think this is where like a lot of unions would say like, I think just to like take a step back, like the union movement is in decline in the US, right? Like it's been declining by like 1% every year for three decades. I don't know about the last year. Like the union movement is in a conservative frame of mind for the most part, Right. Like, we don't have time to spend our resources and staff organizers on this unproven stuff. We don't even know if these workers will organize or what's going to happen with it, right? CWA's approach was like, well, we don't want to die in a fancy coffin. Let's go on the offensive. And like, that really resonated with me, right? And I think like the kind of support that we got, like, it's really hard to appreciate if you haven't been in an organization and failed. But I know <laughs> how many areas where we would have made mistakes if we didn't have staff organizers telling us, here's what you should do instead, 
or not here's what you should do, but here's what we did at other campaigns. Here's where this looked different. Because ultimately when I talk about like oppositions between our work and our identity as workers versus like CWA, there's things we have to take from the organizing history and there's things unique about our workplace. That's true for any campaign, you name it, right? But tech workers sometimes think we're way more special than we are, that we can't be organized on these like union lines because we're special and we own our own labor and we're, we, have, we have free breakfast, therefore we're not workers, you know? All that stuff is dispelled by like what we did, right? At the same time, like not every union would come in and understand that Google workers are weird sometimes. Like there's sometimes difficulties you have to deal with when it comes to like the unique needs of how tech workers communicate about issues, what the expectations are, how many design docs we have to write when we want to do anything. I mean, less so now, but like that, that's kind of like to illustrate some of the tensions, right? But ultimately it's like, why do we want to redo all this work? First of all, when we can get this help and get it up more quickly and do it more practically, why should we spend some of our precious time to figure out how to set up a 501c whatever and hire lawyer tax accountant lawyers for like every state or whatever when that can be taken care of for us? But then beyond that, I mean, I said before, like, I thought it'd be easier to talk Google workers into joining an independent union compared to one that's part of the CWA. But joining a union doesn't mean you have power. Joining a union doesn't mean you've put together a bunch of unionists. Joining a union doesn't mean you have a bunch of people ready to take collective action. So I really think about it on class lines. Is it right to say I only care about solidarity with my coworkers at Google or do I care about solidarity with the whole working class? So to me, that's like the really big thing. How do you tie labor union stuff to like bigger politics? What does it mean to join this broader movement of unions and be united with like 500,000 other workers in CWA, millions of other workers in the AFL-CIO? It's not that these connections are always concrete or obvious, but the fact is that we are connected and that these other workers who are less privileged than the average Google worker, like put their money aside to say, we want to support these Google workers. We want to support this campaign. It was called Campaign to Organize Digital Employees. It's, it's still called that, Code CWA, which is this effort to organize game and tech workers. And we were a big part of that. And for us, for me, it's like, wow, like those workers reached out and gave us a hand when we needed it, when we didn't know what to do. And like, I want to join this movement because I want to be in solidarity with them. And this is a way to build towards greater power, greater change when you talk about really, really big issues. I've been talking for too long, but that's kind of like the big picture of like how we got involved with CW. I'm happy to answer any follow-ups about specifics there. Honey, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm snapping. I'm clapping. You could be talking for as long as you want. I think I, I'm 100% on board um, with all of that. And I, I really love um, the way you're framing it as well and really thinking about it and drawing these, I mean, really tough connections from the kind of the everyday uh, micro kind of concerns and issues around the organizing, the the talking to people, that interpersonal stuff we were just talking about and, and all of those concerns, but then tying them to these larger macro um, kind of relations of solidarity, of class power. Um, I mean, I think that's a, it's a really... Uh, tricky and hard thing, uh, a hard dialectic to kind of keep, but a, a, an absolutely a necessary one as well, where you don't you don't get so you have to get really bogged down in the details with the, with this stuff, but you can't get so bogged down to forget like why you're doing it in the first place and what you're working towards in a in a larger sense. So I, I really love you talking about that that relationship there. You know, also to your point about how there there may be a tendency among some tech workers to try to think or try to dispute the idea that the organizing methods of, of unions and other organizations don't exactly port over. You know, I, I'd be curious also on your thoughts on over the past five 
years, I would say, is when we, you know, along with 2018 onward with the walkout, but also with, you know, coverage from the New Republic or from Jacobin, trying to look at other tech places that were trying to organize. There's been a bunch of like attempts to try to figure out how should tech workers be imagined as tech workers? Are there any, is there anything distinct or different about them? Or that, what are the reasons why they might think things are different? And, and I'd be curious also, like, you know, you've, you've seen how, you've seen how unions and other groups have been able to talk to, to workers and try to convince them that they are just workers that who can be organized and they have an interest because they're human beings in workplace that should be, um, you know, looked after. But have you seen shifts in how management and how bosses and how corporations have tried to speak to workers and convince them that unions are not uh, structures that they need or that they should not work in a union, work with the union, they should stay away from them, and then instead there's some other way of mediating conflict or getting what they want from the workplace, either as an individual or as a group. Yeah, I I don't think that that's not something that, uh, at least in my experience, that companies have done a very good job at. Like, I think they just push the the normal union busting playbook, you know, uh, hey, it's a third party. It will come, you know, in between our relationship. Uh, and, you know, that hasn't really, I guess, like, that's not something I've seen from Alphabet or, you know, other companies where, where software developers are unionizing. Uh, that I think a lot of that I'm special because I'm a tech worker kind of comes from like the the self mythology that a lot of the workers have, uh, you know, and I think uh, a lot of that probably does spring from Silicon Valley, you know, where everyone's like, hey, uh, you know, I'm working at Google today, but soon I can be on, you know, a, a Y Combinator top 50 startup or something. And then, you know, that's the, that's why, you know, I could be a founder and a CEO. So I don't need a union because of that. Um, and, you know, there is also like the, I think Ani mentioned the, the class position of workers too, that, you know, especially for our, you know, our members who are software developers at Google, uh, you know, right. Like, which are kind of probably at the, the top of the, you know, privilege ladder or something, which is me, right. That like, you know, there are people who you come out of college and you make $175,000 a year. Uh, you know, we have pretty senior software engineers who work in the Bay area and, uh, New York, who are probably pushing, you know, like $750,000 a year and like how much money they make. And so, you know, there is definitely something, you know, like to be said about how, you know, you, we can say, oh, well, I have a paycheck, thus I am a worker. Um, but, you know, it takes like a lot more, I think, education and pushing to to get those people to like truly identify like with their identity as members of the working class. Um, and so, you know, that's something that we've, you know, we've struggled with a little bit, but, you know, for the most part, it's, I think the hardest part of, of organizing is really just getting people to talk to their coworkers and, you know, and getting them to, to broach that sometimes uncomfortable conversation because a lot of people will respond with, you know, Hey, I have it pretty good. Like I, whatever I'm, like I said earlier, I live in Chicago. There's no, you know, in the Bay area, you know, maybe prior to all of the layoffs, it's very easy to hop from meta to Amazon to Google to, you know, Stripe or like wherever it is that you want to work. Uh, but you know, uh, we have lots of folks where we have lots of union members, uh, kind of percentage wise are in Chicago or Cambridge or, um, the research triangle in North Carolina and a lot of those places, the tech market isn't as big. And so people are, 
you know, sometimes like they want to play it safe because they're like, this is the the best job I can have here without moving to New York or the Bay Area. Um, so I guess which is to say that like I think the 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 challenges are you know uh, when it comes to tech worker as worker identity mostly seem to come from the workers themselves um not so much from from management um although there was that uh, ani that example you mentioned earlier of i forget who it was but some vc said you know oh like this is an insult to unions uh who only belong to you know coal miners who are in danger of black lung and otherwise <laughs> shut up and enjoy your paycheck which vc said that i think it was one of the uh one of the till vc does his name rhyme with jason okay. no it wasn't jason i think it was one of the one of the uh the till vcs one of the founders fund guys uh, yeah of course yeah, they're still working on the propaganda over there. And like, I would add something too. Like, when it comes to, are we workers or not? I mean, this is where like I like to say like the questions you're asking nowadays are like leagues different from the questions we were asking at the very beginning. Like some of the things that seem so obvious now, we were like puzzled over. Not just puzzled over, but people were like unsure about whether we could do this or not. Like, are we really workers? Could we really organize a union in these ways? Like when you talk about like a senior engineer making five hundred thousand dollars a year, like. Here's where a lot of people who say they're leftists but haven't actually read any theory get mixed up between privilege and wealth and class position and labor and production, right? If somebody on my team is a senior engineer making $500,000, you can bet that Google's making a million dollars off of them, you know? When it comes to like the level of wage scale, it's a really odd thing to be in this kind of industry, this kind of like sector of pay or whatever, but this is a product of like how valuable our labor is, how valuable technology is in the way that's being produced over here. And then it's a question of like, are you, does this system work for you? Yeah, for some people who are workers at Google, the system works for them. It's probably going to work for them till the day they're retired and then they don't care anymore, you know? But this is, does the system work for you? Is it going to work for you tomorrow? Is it going to work for you in five years? Does it work for everybody the same way, you know? Because I'm a disabled woman. I'm a queer woman. I'm not somebody trying to hop from place to place, you know? Like for me, there's like specific things at Google that make me want to be here because I feel safer like as an employee here, there's protections, there's work that other people before me did to make this a safer place to work. So like you get people from all walks of life here. Like you also shouldn't, like people shouldn't forget that like tech work is like one of the very few places of like mobility from working class kids who have like no other heritage, no other like, you know, my parents were in software engineers, you know, the same way that we have the nepotism and like lots of other like high skill, whatever pay sort of things. But then the main point is like, yeah, you might be treated well today. Are you going to be treated well tomorrow? And like, do you have the power to change anything if you're treated differently? Like for many people, as Stephen can talk about, like the layoffs were a massive wake-up call, right? Um, oh, actually, our job is precarious. And a lot of people would take like a big pay cut to stay at Google because they're not just here because they feel they're being valued, like in terms of their pay, but they feel their opinions are valued, you know? They feel like they have a say over the work. They like the people that they're working with. Like Google has all these elements of the culture that really promote solidarity and cooperation and then those elements have been taken away, taken away as the company is changing, as the company's like management style, as the company's whatever, the people, the VPs that they're hiring is changing, right? But those people still yearn for that kind of control over that kind of empowerment over our work, you know? I think that's where a lot of like the desire for unionization for some people comes from. It's not just like, I want to be compensated fairly for my work, but like, I want to have a say in what my work is for. I want to feel like my opinion is valued. I want to feel like I can change things about what my work is being used for and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I've a hundred percent. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that as well. I mean, it was it was just very recently, Ed, that I went off on a whole rant on an episode about class composition and the relationship between labor and capital and and all of that. And I I completely agree that like class is much more than your paycheck, right? It is a relationship to capital. It's a relationship to the the means of producing value versus the means of extracting and exploiting that value, um, and as well. I mean, you mentioned, you know, being a, a queer disabled woman. And I, and I think that's a really key part here that like being a worker is also a lot more than just what you're being paid, right? It's about the kind of rights and, uh, and, and, and privileges and, and, uh, abilities that you have, um, while doing that work, right? And, you know, I, I hate to invoke his name, of course, but it's it's so relevant that, you know, it was only recent, a couple of days ago, I think, that Elon Musk said that it's uh, immoral to work from home, right? Um, and, and this kind of, which is very much this idea that, like, you need to be in the workplace so that I can see you working and make sure that you are working, you know, 18 hours a day, giving a hundred percent, um, effort all the time, or at least, you know, doing a very credible performance of that, uh, for, for his eyes. Right. I think as well, like these are, these are labor issues, right? Um, like, uh, the idea that uh, you, uh, Ani need a very different, um, way of organizing and doing your work than me, um, or Steven or Ed, right? Like we all have our own unique, um, kind of, uh, requirements for, for what that work looks like. I mean, some of it needs to be accommodated, um, in very specific ways. And that, that's, that's a, that's a, that doesn't, like ultimately it doesn't matter what you're being paid um, if you are uh, unable to um, do your job in a way that is like safe and healthy and comfortable for you to do it in, right? Like the idea that, uh, you know, you should be working for your paycheck and sacrificing your your body and mind and family and, and giving up everything for that paycheck, that's also very much a, an antiquated kind of way of thinking about um, the the labor relation and one that you know ultimately can only be um, fixed uh, uh, and addressed through having something like a, a, a union and and labor movement with real power. Yeah, I mean, I think like when it comes to working conditions, like it's a, it's a big grab bag of a lot of things. First of all, right? Um, you talk about like health insurance. What is covered under the health insurance? What kind of issues do you have? Are all your providers going to be in network, whatever? And then maybe there's like two ways to talk about it, like two angles to look at it from. One is like, we have it great. Everyone else should have it great. Because that's like some of the Twitter reaction you get. It's like, oh, like, why do these workers need you? I'm like, no, like in some ways, my job is great. In other ways, it's not. In some ways, my job is great. I want your job to be great too. We shouldn't be tearing each other down. We should be trying to bring everybody up, right? That's what it means to like be in a union and actually working for that instead of just like saying that, you know? On the other side, like if you're just arguing and tearing down other workers, you're just doing the boss's work for them. Like you have not identified the person in the way of everybody's work being better, right? But at the same time, like even within Google, I mean, it's a massive company, right? Like some people talk about big tech companies, like every team you're in is like a different company, different vibe, different practices, XYZ, whatever things. Like without getting too much like into my personal stuff, but it's like remote work access, like the idea of that, like beforehand, like is your manager okay with it? What are the official Google policies? Whatever things like that. None of that is codified, right? And then we have all these like 
extra hornets thrown at it with the with COVID and everything like that. So how do we like get consistency for that? Um, but then like remote work is one of those things. But then you also talk about like well the right to be a woman in tech and like have a safe work environment and not be harassed for your work. Like Google has all this stuff about like oh we need to hire more uh, women of color, all this sort of thing. Like people are like, what about the attrition rate? How many people are coming here and then leaving? Um, how many of their stories are being told? How many stories are being remembered? I mean, if they hit a diversity headcount, they don't care. They don't track the attrition, that kind of thing afterwards. And then, like, let me highlight, like, a really specific thing, which is, like, queer-related healthcare coverage. So this is where, like, okay, there's a lot of tension, like, in the early days. Like, at the company overall, like, is Google on our side? Like, is management friendly? Because, like, I don't know, I, I, I never had any, like, disillusionments about that or anything, but like the company was different 15 years ago, you know, especially if you talk about like workers being treated really well, but also the company is making so much money when it just comes on the board that they're like, yeah, you can have whatever because it's not worth, like we want our workers to be happy because we're making so much money off of them, you know? So like one thing I really want to highlight is like coverage for gender affirming surgery, gender affirming care, because that's like kind of something that was unheard of in insurance like 20 years ago. That's like trans workers at Google who organized like long before there was a union and were able to advocate and get those policies put into place in a way that's now started to like spread from company to company, but too slowly, you know? And when you talk about the crisis, the political crisis for trans people, like that's something really top of mind for me. How do you take the healthcare coverage that's here? How do you make that a model for other unions? Not just like organize a union to have this kind of coverage, but also like this should be a priority for every union to organize for this kind of thing in your collectively bargained contracts and stuff like that, right? So there's just a couple examples how like we want to bring everybody up to the same level. Some of these things have to be codified in order for everybody to have access to work here because like if you can't access those things and you need to have those things, you can't work at the company, right? Yeah, and I think something too that has to do with the setup of, of Google and Alphabet's workplace is the like the amount of subcontracting that they do uh, creates a I don't know, sometimes snappily on Twitter we refer to it as the two tier system but there's like a hundred tiers and <laughs> the the way that they are you know able to outsource work to contractors you know so people maybe work for Accenture or Cognizant and then you know they're on you know contracts that may get renewed every two years or they may not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that like even the the, the benefits and, you know, the good health care and things that direct Google employees have don't extend to a lot of the workforce. Uh, like one of our probably more successful groups of organizing workers are people who are uh, they're, they're called raiders is their role. So like they actually, so I work on Google search, uh, specifically when you click on images and they get bigger, that's like me in a team of 50 people. And, uh, so also other people in our union, uh, they're subcontracted. They work for, uh, companies called like Telus or app and raider labs. And what their job is they get two pictures of like different Google search results page and their job is to pick, you know, hey, which one is better? So they actually like fine tune the algorithm, um, you know, to make to make search more useful for people, you know, as, as much as it can be with all of the, the SEO and other stuff that goes on. But, you know, so they're, you know, that's their job. And they actually do piecework for the most part, uh, you know, that they get paid. Uh, they were getting paid 12, $12 or $10 an hour, actually $10 an hour for, you know, hour of work done. But they actually have to sit in a queue kind of like in like a mechanical Turk style system, like waiting for, you know, assignments to come to them. And they actually, you know, through their organizing, they've gotten raises to $14 an hour and they've been promised $15 an hour later this year. 
But even then, like that work is they don't get health insurance, they don't get retirement, and they only get paid for like what's called time on task. Um, and so, you know, that it's very, even in, you know, Google itself, like it's, there's so many different types of workers and workplaces uh, that, you know, don't all get like the good benefits that, you know, uh, direct employees get. So that's also been a big focus of our organizing is, you know, how do we like try to abolish and get rid of those distinctions? You know, we're all contributing really essential labor to having Google make, you know, whatever, $15 billion a quarter in profit. And so how do we also get all of these contracted workers their fair share uh, in addition to, you know, getting uh, better, you know, good protections for the people who work at Google itself? I love this. I, I I love the focus because you do. You have to encompass everybody. I love the focus on people that are just you know not only the you know direct employed engineers at Google, but really it is like no, there, there's a a really big and expansive network of labor that is, and everybody is crucial in a different way to making this whole system of profit making work um, to making it operate. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, going back to the the kind of the pay question as well, in a lot of ways, that is not only about the value that your labor is producing, but also the, um, the rate of exploitation that capital can get away with, right? And so, like, if you're a, uh, you know, if you're classified or seen as a highly skilled, highly educated engineer, um, then you as a person feel like, hey, now I've got a bit more power in the labor market. You can't get away with making a million dollars off my labor and only paying me $15 an hour. So I'm, I'm going to demand a little bit more. I want, hey, I want at least a third or a quarter of, <laughs> of, of the, of the serve of the value that you're making off of me. Right. But like, you know, this, if capital could get away with paying um, either one of you $15 an hour, they absolutely would, right? Um, and they would continue because that's just a, uh, that's just widening the gap between production and exploitation. Um, and recognizing that that they are doing that to uh of you know a wide class of people directly and uh employed or subcontracted um is i think yeah again it speaks to something else to what ani was saying as well that this is really about um having that uh class level solidarity about not just solidarity with um the people working in the cubicle with you or working on your 50 person team but all the people who are involved in making this whole thing um work and you know and and I think as well um in addition to all of the the kind of individual uh barriers to that things that we've talked about about you know tech workers thinking they're they're special and and to to show that they're you know not very special as well in my in my sector I'm in that, you know academia uh academics think the same thing we think we're not workers we're special right and I've ranted um often and always about how most academics are like aspirational middle managers. They don't think of themselves as workers. They aspire to be middle managers. Um, and it makes things really difficult when it comes to organizing as well um, in the uh, academic sector, at least where I'm based in Australia. Um, we do have a union, but it still is, um, you know, it's very it's very hard. And a lot of the, the, the things that we are unionizing around are really a lot of the same stuff Ani was talking about. It's not just pay increases because we 
our our you know our pay has been um, you know uh, declining in you know, in real wages due to inflation and and everything. Meanwhile, the you know ex- the executives' pays keep increasing well above inflation rates. But also things around gender affirming care is a really big issue for the ongoing negotiations that are happening um, in at my university and other Australian universities right now. Um, so these issues are also like. Really Really cross sectoral, um, and they are organ the cap the, the the management. Uh, these you know whether it's Google or whether it's a university, they're also organized in much the same way. We we rely very heavily on. We don't call them subcontractors, but we call them like casual or adjunct uh, lecturers who do a lot of the work and stuff. And 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 there or a lot of these problems are very very similar, um, if not identical, in large part because it's all the same professional class of managers um, coming in and telling these industries how to organize themselves. It's McKinsey. Uh, consulted with our university just as they consulted with Google, just as they've consulted with fill in the blank, and they have one playbook that they run every single place, right? And so there is this kind of like uh, uh, mass consolidation and managerial tactics across many different, seemingly different industries, which again, I think speaks to Ani's point as well, that these issues um, are are extremely similar for labor across a lot of uh, industries and require recognizing that and building uh, building that into the the movement. Like I think, okay, so first of all, like the way Google refers to these group of workers as TVCs, temps vendors, contractors. Um, these numbers aren't up to date, but like a previous report showed TVCs were like over half the population of workers at Google. So here's a company that does all this great PR about all the great pool tables and breakfast you're going to get working here. And then over half the workers are like subcontracted, you know? Um, I think like also the example of accessional lecturers versus like professors, like I really ran into that parallel because I I met a lot of like university folks organizing and like saw a lot of the same um, patterns playing out both like in the current time, but also like I get so many examples, so many ideas from like reading labor history. And like the thing is like our, our fates are tied together. It's one thing to tell somebody like we're all part of the same working class, but if you can make the argument really logically and concretely, why should Google pay you so much when they could pay a contractor less money to do this job? Google is treating these subcontractors the way that they want to treat you and the way, the way that they will treat you once they train an army of like replacement level software engineers to flood the market or whatever, supply and all this stuff, you know? Like there's a really concrete economic relationship. And then when it comes to like our union forming, this is like a little bit in the weeds here, but like in the US, there's a process for certification through the National Labor Relations Board, and you enter this bargaining process. And for a lot of unions, like this narrow bargaining process is like the entirety of unionism, right? For us, if we went through that view of it, we would not be in a union with our subcontracted coworkers because they would be considered a separate employer. We wouldn't have the opportunity to, to do some of the great work that we've been able to do. And like when we launched our union, like I think like this is like a really important thing about being a pre-majority union. Like we launched and we didn't all get fired out of a cannon, and suddenly all these people can find us. Like, I'm really glad Stephen brought up the example of those Raider workers because I remember when the very first person like came to one of our organizing office hours, and like he just found out about AWU when we publicly launched in the media, and he joined it. And I'm like, wait, so you do all this work, you get paid like basically minimum wage, ten bucks an hour, but you can't interact with any of your coworkers. You're in a chat box. You don't even get to see each other's names, and management is monitoring everything. It like befuddled me. Like, how do you even like organize? How do you have one-on-one conversations? 
and like they figured it out. Like they went to like they literally went to Reddit. They like got things together. Uh, Stephen can talk more because I don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about with the campaign and that. But that's like such a great example of like. Yeah, I said, like, there's a lot of people from all walks of privilege in our union, but to be clear, like, our priority is the people who need help the most, you know? Our priority is the issues for people who are in these worst conditions who need the help right now. And for somebody who says, like, oh, like, I'm a privileged software engineer, but I don't want to be paid so well, but, like, my coworker, even though they're subcontracted, gets paid so little, well, join a union, you can be part of the protection for them, you can be part of the structure. If anything happens, we're all in this together, we can provide solidarity strike funds, lawyers, all this stuff, and, like, that's like stuff like I imagine like my wildest dreams like before we started the union and for it to play out so quickly in the last couple of years is like it blows my mind. But then you talk about like challenging that idea of co-employment and maybe like Stephen could speak more to this because I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about. But like we actually had a really big win when it comes to when it comes to like actually forcing this facade aside to say like no these are Google employees they're managed by Google they get paid indirectly by Google they need to be uh, forcing Google to be at the bargaining table. So Stephen could talk more because I don't <laughs> I'm not up to date on which things are secret. Yes. All right. No, no. This is uh, this is not secret. There's actually uh, a really good uh, recent Bloomberg Law article about this. Uh, so this is not about the the raiders, but we have uh, some workers who work for. Uh, they are technically employed by Cognizant, and they work on YouTube Music. Uh, so it's a team of about 50 workers who are in charge of like kind of interfacing with the record companies and saying, hey, like the, the artist info or the metadata on these tracks that we uploaded to YouTube Music isn't correct. You know, can you go fix it? So these, like, so YouTube Music, right? Google acquired YouTube, you know, way back in the day. It's like pretty synonymous with Google. And YouTube Music is their Spotify competitor or whatever. And it's like the, the catalog of all the music is managed by subcontractors, which, uh, whatever is, it was a little fishy. And so what we, we actually had these workers do was they, you know, gathered a bunch of evidence from like how their work was conducted. And then, and so this group of workers, since it's like 50 workers in a combined workplace, you know, most of them work out of like Austin, Texas, uh, if you were remote, uh, this, you know, for this group of workers, they actually decided that they wanted to pursue like a union election with the national labor relations board. But in addition, like we were able to kind of uh, provide, you know, like whatever we have, like lawyers, uh, not on staff, but who we like contract with, who, you know, helped them go and gather evidence and, you know, figure out that, hey, even though you work for Cognizant, your performance reviews, uh, and this is, uh, I think this is the example, but whatever, lawyers don't quote me, you know, the, like uh, your performance reviews are given by a Google manager or your training is provided by Google. So basically Google was not like properly, you know, contracting or outsourcing the work um, to the point that they exercised enough control over what these nominally cognizant workers were doing that the National Labor Relations Board ruled, uh, Google's appealing, but like they ruled, you know, actually, hey, you're employed by both Cognizant and Google. Um, and so, you know, hopefully when these workers like uh, who, they just won their election 41 to zero, uh, which was whatever pretty big uh, landslide that <laughs> you know they when they go to the bargaining table they were also the first ever strike at Google right Stephen uh, yes and yeah they also uh, whatever went on the the first ever strike at Google and so whatever like we want you know those workers want to bargain with Google because you know Google's exercising enough control over their work that they should be responsible for you know their working conditions their wages their benefits 
Um, and so, you know, this is also like something that we want to organize around is like, you know, a better, you know, definitely better conditions for contractors, but also like, you know, making sure that people who are contractors are, you know, like, I don't know, like being, being made contractors in the right way, right? Or should actually all these people be employed by Google or have different standards or something? Uh, so that, that's something like really cool that that our workers have been doing recently. So we're, we're excited about that. The misclassification schemes never fucking end. Ever, ever, ever. They're all everywhere. Are there analogous structures overseas that you are working with or, you know, attempting to work with? Um, you know, I think we talked a little bit earlier at the top about workers, uh, about the local and the focus uh, on organizing and, you know, and being a gr- uh, given a green light to organize in the United States and Canada. But are there, you know, like, you know, nodes or networks in which you're interfaced with or which there is some exciting organizing going on across the across the pond or is that also something or does that have too small of a footprint to talk about or is that something that also we shouldn't talk about uh yeah we can we can definitely talk about it we've uh i mean so like we're We've been in contact with lots of unions in other countries. Uh, A lot of them only recently took off uh, after the layoffs. Um, And so, you know, I think like probably the biggest growth, I think, was in uh, Ireland and the UK, um, you know, where a lot of workers, they, uh, whatever, I think in UK, a lot of them are organized with Unite. And then in Ireland, some are organized with, uh, it's called FSU, Financial Services Union, that like they came together after the layoffs. And because of uh, the slightly better protections offered by UK and Irish labor law, uh, between when Google announced, hey, we're laying off 12,000 people, and when people actually got laid off, uh, they had a lot of time to organize, uh, you know, and try to like put up a fight against the company. They were also able to get representation on like the employee councils that, you know, some uh, whatever European countries like mandate, you you know, you speak to when you do layoffs. Um, so they're, they're like, there has been good international organizing and we've been connected with them. Uh, you know, we did actually kind of do an international petition to, you know, try to get people who were, uh, you know, interested in signing like a public letter about how Google should prioritize. I think the main demand was, you know, workers who were at risk of being deported to, uh, Ukraine or Russia, uh, to try to like have Google not lay them off. Uh, and so we did uh, like an international petition, got, you know, I think like 1200 signatures and like a lot of good leads of people who wanted to organize unions. Uh, so, yeah, we have been working with them, but like, you know, like it's, you know, they're in different time zones. There's different labor law that like we can provide solidarity. But at the moment, we're not at the point, you know, where we're, we're doing, I don't know, cool international strikes or something like that. But like we are building those bonds uh, with workers in Europe. And then also, I think most recently, workers in Japan and Korea uh, have also been forming unions. Um, and so we've been in contact with them as well. So, yeah, it's been it's been cool just to kind of see the. I, I don't know, like the the international aspect of this as well. As well. A big issue we've only just touched on a little bit, I think would be really nice to end on, both in terms of thinking about whether the 
the the challenges ahead, but maybe also what are some of the opportunities ahead? And and that of course is this, you know, we've mentioned the layoffs, but I think there's, you know, the there's a kind of uh, dual dual uh, issue here, kind of two sides of a of a sword. Where you know, on one hand, you've got these massive layoffs, right? So, um, but also on the other hand, with the massive layoffs comes this pivot towards uh, AI and the massive investments in AI, right? And so, this is a kind of uh, a, a dual assault on labor in many ways, right? You lay off a bunch of workers, and then you say, you know, we're going to invest billions of dollars into creating the AI that can uh, replace uh, the workers or um, otherwise augment the um, the labor practice uh, in such a way as to, to make it worse uh, in every way for workers. And this is, you know, uh, very much a, a huge issue right now with, uh, you know, the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, as well. I saw that um, SAG-AFTRA, the Screen Actors Guild, have uh, called for a strike as well with AI being a major issue that they are striking about. So we are soon, you know, so we've got the writers striking. We're soon to see the actors um, striking. And these are two really high profile unions uh, in, in the world, but especially in America. And so I wanted to, to, to ask from the the AWU perspective, from the tech sector, tech worker perspective, um, what are some of the conversations and challenges you've been seeing and, and having um, around kind of AI and the layoffs happening simultaneously? Um, let's let's it, let's go there, and then we can end the episode. I, I'm I'm really keen to kind of end on a higher note. Talk about some maybe opportunities, but let's talk about this kind of uh, the the big double issue right now. Yeah, this is like out. I've so I whatever. I'm our communications chair, so I send out our our weekly newsletter to all of our members. I whatever kind of help uh, monitor and run our Twitter and stuff. And whatever, I'm, uh, I'm definitely, you know, whatever. I, I listen to to this show pretty regularly, so you know, I'm I'm of the the Luddest type where I'm like, all right, we gotta <laughs> the AI is stupid, we gotta get rid of it. Uh, but uh, whatever, we are we are trying to you know organize a lot of workers uh, who work at a company that you know does AI. And actually, we we do have like a lot of members who are you know like we have uh, lots of people you know were very upset when uh, Dr. Gebru was you know fired and forced out of the company, and so we we do have a lot of concerns around AI ethics. We've had a long history of organizing against military contracts and military projects, um, but we do also have a lot of people who are actually like I don't know, like are concerned about you know AI safety and and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, like trying to find like a messaging balance and, you know, also like finding things to organize around that can like pull together the broadest set of people, um, you know, has been, been our focus, I think. So like, you know, I think within Google itself, um, you know, like, uh, especially for the software developers, I don't think there's been, you know, too much or at least like a perceived push to kind of eliminate or de-skill our jobs with AI. Uh, like we do have uh, kind of like an internal version of, if, if you all know what like GitHub Copilot is, where, you know, you start typing some code and it says, oh, like based on, you know, scanning all of GitHub's code, I think this is probably what you want to say next. And so we have so like a lot of little tools like that that are useful. And I think at the moment, non-threatening, um, at least to the software engineers. 
But then to the contracted workforce, you know, we do have a lot of people who write technical documentation or, you know, or manage the YouTube music catalog. And so, you know, a lot of these workers are, you know, are concerned about how is the push to AI going to automate or de-skill my work? And I'm sure that that push will also come to the software developers at some point. Uh, but you know, at the at the moment, people mostly seem to think like it's a cool tool, and you know, are interested in advancing the state of the art. Um, and so, you know, I think we've kind of focused most of our attention on who's it who's it hurting right now, and how can we you know find ways to fight against that and like build solidarity with those workers, um, maybe rather than trying to to fight the battle of convincing everyone uh, within the company that AI is really bad and and we all need to sign a petition to oppose it or something. So that's that's something I've I've struggled with with trying to whatever connect all these different parts of the union and figure out like what are people's shared issues when it when it comes to AI. I mean, like I don't have like a union stance on this, just like my own ramblings. But I studied like cognitive science in school, and I'm like, oh wow, AI is coming, and this is going to ruin our entire fabric of society. And then I learned about climate disaster, and I was like, okay, I guess we have to deal with climate disaster because that's going to ruin us before the AI disaster. And then I learned about capitalism, and I'm like. I guess we have to learn about the deal with the capitalism disaster first, and then we can deal with the climate disaster. Then we do the AI disaster. So now everyone's up to this point. Now I'm like, guys, I've been freaking out about this for like ten years. Um, I mean, like, there's no easy answer for it. It's just like completely illogical to think like this would be a bad thing in a society. Like any sane society would be like, oh wow, we can do less work and people can do more interesting things, like write songs and like make art and stuff instead of wasting their time on this automated stuff. Like. It's not an AI issue, it's a capitalism issue. Obviously, everyone on this podcast knows that. Um, I think just like when it comes to the practicals of it, like Stephen touched on most of it, but I think like I think that's something that came up like from CWA when it came to like us being part of CWA, like this is an issue that's coming. What does it look like to have a union where employees are developing AI and other employees like in our sister unions who are being affected by this directly, right? I don't have an answer for how that plays out, but I think the point is like actually having that in one organization where these conversations can happen, where we can learn about the impact of our work directly is like just a really important place to start with it. And then you talk about like workers who are resisting some of the worst impulses of AI, like how we're doing codified machine learning racism now and all this stuff, right? Who don't actually have a say in their work or ability to like defend themselves for taking that stance. And we see like how Google's kind of like given some space to that, but then taken away resources from AI ethics teams um, as time has gone by. Um, but then, like, ultimately, it's like, if everyone's going to lose their jobs, like, y'all better get in unions, you know? Like, AI is something that's, like, exacerbating, accelerating these crises. We better all be in a union because when we're talking about, like, everyone take to the streets, like, we don't actually belong in organizations. So maybe that's a good segue, but, like, what does it look like to actually have a working class that's organized? Not just in unions, like, tenant unions, like, community organizations, everything, but, like, be in some organization to begin with so we can actually have a conversation that's not on Twitter and people arguing and just like this disparate, loose, whatever, random stuff, you know? Like, how do we actually get the working class organized together to take on these issues is like kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah, yeah no, we, I, we are in a union with uh, the News Guild, um, who's also part of Communications Workers of America. And so, you know, yeah, it's, it's uh, like... Like Ani said, it's interesting that, you know, Google's big priority right now is, you know, I guess like getting its LLMs to, to you know, catch up to ChatGPT. Uh, but then on, you know, a, a different side of, of CWA, we have, you know, like workers at BuzzFeed who were all fired because they said like, hey, we can, you know, we can replace uh, these, you know, people who research and write articles with prompts. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think definitely like getting our workers to, you know, learn about and like find solidarity with these other workers, um, you know, and figure out how we can all like best combat and, you know, like control this technology in a way that's actually good for workers and not just good for, you know, our, our shareholders and our executives. Hundred percent, yeah. And so I think that is all a really great segue to talking about well, you know, uh, what what are some of the opportunities ahead. So I mean, you know, talk about any that you want, but maybe focusing specific like specifically on AWU. Like, what's kind of next steps for Alphabet Workers Union? What are some of the big opportunities that you see? Um, but then feel free to to go off from there to um, talk as big and broad as you want. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think, uh, you know, we've had uh, with YouTube Music and earlier with, uh, we had workers at a Google Fiber store in Kansas City, uh, who also like went through the NLRB election process. Um, you know, I think one thing that, you know, we, we hope we get to the point and, you know, also we have workers who want to do this, right? Like we're, we're entirely member led. So if, you know, if people are like, no, we want to do IWW style, no contracts, you know, like only all we do is just walk out of the office every time, you know, like a boss fucks up, uh, you know, whatever. I think like, that's great. Um, and, but, you know, I'd also be interested in like what, you know, when enough workers who, you know, have leverage and organization within Google get together and say, Hey, this team or this org, or, you know, some, some part of the company, when they want to come together, you know, and like win a union election. And then like, what would bargaining a contract, uh, with Google look like, um, you know, that like, how can we, you know, take kind of like, uh, you know, definitely like very, very top of the industry in, you know, wages and benefits and whatnot, like what would, you know, if those workers are actually, you know, like sitting down with Google at the bargaining table, like what can they get, you know, for, for themselves and then show workers across the tech industry. Like, you know, you think you have it good when you come together, you know, with your coworkers in your union, you can actually have it this much better. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something I'd be excited about. Uh, something else that, uh, whatever, I guess I used to be excited about now, maybe less so, but I'm, I'm really interested in what, uh, you know, as unionization in the tech sector grows, what strikes will look like. Um, you know, because I think there was a lot of hype around when Elon fired, you know, whatever, 75% of Twitter, everyone was like, oh, this website's toast. Like, you know, it's going to be down in two days. And, you know, he's whatever, continued to make a bunch of very dumb product decisions. And, you know, there have been periods where the app's been a little glitchier and the service isn't as available as it used to. Uh, but like, for the most part, it's stayed up, even with like a very small percentage of, you know, the workforce still working on Twitter. And we even within Google, there's a split between I'm a I'm a SWE uh, software engineer and we have another like role of people who are very similar to software software engineers, but they're called SREs, which is site reliability engineer. And, you know, their whole job every day is to be, you know, like work, code tools, add monitoring, do all this stuff. So it's like, if, you know, if Google.com goes down, how can I, you know, A, prevent that from ever happening and then automate everything so that, you know, the website can keep itself healthy and like keep, you know, serving user searches and showing ads. And so I'm, I'm very interested in like what strikes in the tech sector would look like, especially since so much of tech is focused on like almost like automating ourselves out of jobs by making our software so robust and self-healing and, you know, like doing all these things. 
Um, so yeah, I'm like, what are, I don't know how many years off that is, but that's something I'm super excited for to see how it actually turns out. Uh, cause it's like, it's not the same as like, if I don't go into work, it will, you know, like I work on a very like backend infrastructure team within Google search. So if I don't go into work, whatever, everything's fine. Even if my entire team, you know, or team of 50 people or org doesn't go into work, like things for the most part will keep working for a good amount of time. Uh, and so, you know, I'm curious, like what that will look like in the future. Like how does a tech worker's refusal to work to, to stop production, like how does that actually pan out and look like in practice? Uh, cause I don't think it's quite the same as just like, you know, stopping the assembly line and saying, oh, okay, no more commodities are coming off of it. Uh, so yeah, I, whatever, I want to see that whenever, whenever it happens, hopefully soon. And I'll try to make it happen sooner. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like, I mean, my health is a lot different than it was before. So like before I was like, go get her, like make the union happen, all this stuff. Now I'm like kind of chilling really like a lot of my mind is like education and like, how did we even do this? Cause I mean, I wouldn't have seen this also like humble brag. I wrote like a thesis about the union, like before we had a union, like all these possibilities of like what could happen or whatever. I'm like, Oh, like a lot of this came true. I'm like, great. I need to like brag about this somewhere or whatever. But I'm like, those decisions, that analysis, like that wasn't nothing. It's not relevant or interesting to like 99% of the people in my union, but it should be interesting to like people at Microsoft, people at Amazon, people at whatever other big company who are like, how do I actually make this happen? Or even big tech companies aside, like for me, like this education came from looking at like the 1930s, like industrial union movement. Like how did they build unions before there was labor law, before there was all this structure? What does it look like to earn recognition from your employer and force them to bargain with you? Not because the law says they have to, but because you actually wield the power about it, right? So like there's so much to be said about organizations, how to get them to actually go from like, honestly, like five to 30, 30 to 200 was way harder than 200 to 1,000. 200 to 1,000 was crazy, to be clear. But like, there's a lot of like nuances and like how you get people to get along, how to deal with records, all these little details, like these stories that like I'm really interested in telling more because, I mean, something we talked about, like the pandemic started and we we're like, oh, I guess we've got to put our campaign on pause. And our staff organizer is like, no, like <laughs> you have to figure out a way to do it. Like we don't know how long this is going to last. Like we have to organize virtually if we have to. And she made a point that like, there's times of like great backlash against the working class. Like so many working class people have been suffering like over the pandemic and since it and continue to, right? But then there's often like a wave, a bounce back, right? Like we saw after the Great Depression in the 1930s was the massive CIO movement. Google it if you don't know what I mean because it's really good stories. Um, so like why that's interesting to me is like as a queer worker especially, like how many people are like down with these issues, realize that capitalism is fucked, but like they don't know what to do about it. They don't feel empowered to do anything about it. And like, how might that change in an area in an age of social media? Like, I think the Starbucks campaigns that have been going on are so inspiring because that's such a queer thing to look at. And it's so visible, like across everywhere, right? So when more and more people get to hear about this stuff on social media, like the boss's same old boring union busting hammer starts to be more and more meaningless, especially as like generations turn over and more and more young people are like, Oh, like unions are good. Now, thinking unions are good or great. Sorry, sorry. Thinking unions are good is great, but what do you actually do about it? How do you actually organize a union? What does it look like? Do I want to do this? What skills do I have to develop? I mean, one thing I'd say is like, I think it's okay for me to say, like our organization, CodeCWA, runs organizer trainings that are virtual and happen every week. You can go to CodeCWA.org and don't tell them that I sent you. Tell them you found it on Google or something. Um, No, but like seriously, like get this education because like this stuff doesn't have to be like some mysterious black box. This has all been codified. Like, 
when, when I started, like before I started, organizer training was like, you have to have somebody fly in from like another state and then do like a three day weekend training. And then like, and innovation's like, oh, we're going to do it all in one session for six hours and nobody wanted to come. Now we like have it standardized, like we have it optimized like that. This is a case where like, you know, we had to learn a lot from the labor movement for starting our union, but also like we can change the labor movement in a lot of ways because we can have it take advantage of the technology of social media, of how to deliver this information. So that's kind of like where I'm at. Like unions are great. Tech is bad. I'm down with the Luddism, like destroy all the artificial intelligence. But how do we actually do that? How do we actually give people the skills to destroy the AI is what I'm saying, right? That's right. That's right. I I love this. I mean, this is this is exactly right. You know, this is what we talk about um, so much on this show. Is you know, what does a tech sector? What is what is technology? Um, you know, the design and development uh, of it actually look like when it's led by labor rather than controlled by capital, right? And it's gonna it's gonna be a very different kind of technology. It's gonna be a very different kind of tech sector. The tech work is gonna be different, right? Like you know, all these things are. are you know, it's not just flipping a big switch from uh, capitalism to socialism in the uh, in the you know the content factory or whatever, right? Like um, it requires uh, like getting that outcome requires this kind of work that we're just talking about now. But also, I think you know we've been talking a lot. Uh, I, I love it about a lot of really practical things and some big you know takeaways. You know, for people listening who are like, hey, I want to try that at my workplace. You know, I, I, I work at Amazon, I work at Microsoft, I work wherever. I want to try, you know, organizing as well. I want to be part of a, of a, of a movement. I want to work towards these bigger goals. Um, just the things that both of you have been saying around, like, it's, it's work like any other, um, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are there are lots of people and lots of places you can go um, to learn from. You know, both history uh, as well as the present um, to to learn like how to do this, the practical skills needed to actually do the very concrete, practical work of organizing. It's less daunting, right? It's a less daunting task than it might feel. It's definitely cool to organize a union. It definitely makes you more attractive if you organize a union, just saying. And also, like, the actual process of organizing. I mean, I've, I've been antisocial before. I've described myself that way. Like, the way that I, like, feel so much less alienated at my workplace because now I'm, like, actually talking to the other people who care, who want to make a difference. And, like, my union has, like, saved my ass. Like, a lot of times, like, in and out of work, like, to be part of a culture of care, a culture of solidarity, to be, like, fighting alongside people like that, it makes a work environment like so much better to be in despite all the alienation, despite all the capitalism. But then like beyond that, like when the news is bad, like when I was on the grind, like doing union work, I didn't feel depressed about it. Cause I'm like, the news is bad, but I have my work to do. I have more, I have my role to play. I can see how this fits into a bigger picture, into a bigger politics. And I have something productive to do. That's more productive than doom scrolling and making memes about how capitalism is bad. Right? Like I think being involved with the practice is good for your soul. And like, anyway, that's my pitch for organizing a union, you know, like it's really good for you to do like on a social level, because these are ultimately like social organizations or social structures. We're talking about people at the end of the day. You can't like be a leftist. If you hate humans, you can't be a union organizer. If you have contempt for your coworkers, right? We have to break down those barriers and come together to do something bigger than that. That's exactly right. If you ever wanted to learn how to make friends and influence people, uh, start a union. 
so uh, this, this has been uh, really, really great. I appreciate both of you spending so much time for this, uh, this action-packed episode. It's been such a great conversation. Um, I, is there anywhere that you would like to direct people's attention, anything you want to plug before we, uh, before we leave off? Um, I'll throw it over to, to Stephen for any plugs and then over to Ani. Yeah, no, I'd uh, whatever echo Ani and say that anyone who works in tech or or even just any sort of like you know uh, I don't know like white collar job that you you think could use uh, some organization, uh, I definitely check out uh, code dash cwa dot org, uh, which has a list of upcoming trainings that like our great staff organizers put on. Um, and yeah, I don't know. otherwise I'd just say, uh, stay, stay tuned to the news. Cause we've got a, whatever, we've got big, big things planned. And, you know, I think a fun aspect of being, uh, the union at Google is that we, for an organization of like 1400 people, we get way more news coverage than, <laughs> than any other, uh, equivalent 1400 person union. Uh, so whatever that's, uh, that makes my job a little fun too, is, uh, just, uh, seeing, seeing your name out there, uh, is, is very gratifying. So. Yeah, I know. I'd say uh, go to go to training and talk to your coworkers. Uh, union socials are all good. If anyone wants to like hit me up about union stuff, like I'm hypermobile singer on Instagram, but that's just like me personally. If you want to talk about how we got started, if you're trying to organize a union, again, my health is not that good, but like I would try to talk to you, especially if you're like hint hint another big tech company or like how do we do this? You know, I'd definitely be interested to talk. So hit me up. Hell yeah. That's great. And everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, thank you again, Ani and Steven for a, a fantastic discussion. And yeah, people listen, uh, reach out. Um, I'll throw a link in the episode description for the, uh, code CWA upca- upcoming trainings. Um, and that's a great place to start as well. So, um, thank you again, everybody for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Later. Adios.